This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Elevate your summer with Osea's best-selling body care set. It's everything you need for radiant summer skin on the go. Featuring travel sizes of Osea's clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral skincare, like their best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Right now, you can get the best-seller's body care set, a $78 value, 33% off. And use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com, code SUMMER. Ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isker, and we've got a great, if eclectic, Advisory Opinions Podcast for you today, because we're going to start off with some really interesting uh, legal issues, and then we're going to move much more philosophical with a guest, Joel Alisea. Did I pronounce it correctly, Sarah? You did. From Catholic University, who's starting a new center, who's the honorary chair of it is uh, no none other than Samuel Alito. So that's going to be a fun conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, but we're also going to talk a little Elon Musk. I don't know if we've ever talked about him on this podcast, Sarah. We have not to my memory. No. We're going to talk a little bit about the w- verdicts in the Gretchen Whitmer um, trial, the trial of the those who alleged were alleged to have plotted to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. And then Sarah has a mysterious question for me at the end. We'll see if we have time. time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Sarah, I'm going to read you a statement. And this is going to be what we in the law school world would call an issue spotting exercise. What read between the lines here about Elon Musk? Well, wait a minute. It's not reading between the lines. Read the key. I'm going to read the message and you tell me the key lines. So, Elon Musk, for those who don't know, bought about 10% of Twitter. Just bought it like you and I go and buy groceries. He just bought some Twitter. And he like was going to- Like an impulse purchase of chocolate at the end of the Trader Joe's line. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah, and probably less consequential to him in his overall financial picture than that. <laughs> but he just bought some Twitter and then he proceeded, because this will be relevant, to begin tweeting a lot about Twitter. And let me just say trolling the company that he owns 10% of. So then there is a note to Twitter uh, from Twitter. Team, Elon Musk has decided not to join our board. Here's what I can share about what happened. The board and I had many discussions about Elon joining the board and with Elon directly. We are excited to collaborate and uh, and clear about the risks. We also believe that having Elon as a fiduciary of the company where he, like all board members, has to act in the best interest of the company and all our shareholders was the best path forward. The board offered him a seat. We announced on Tuesday that Elon would be appointed to the board 
contingent on a background check and formal acceptance. Elon's appointment to the board was to become officially effective 4-9, but Elon shared that same morning that he will no longer be joining the board. I believe this is for the best. We have and will always value input from our shareholders, whether they are on our board or not. Elon is our biggest shareholder, and we will remain open to his input. <laughs> there will be distractions ahead, but our goals and priorities may remain unchanged. The decisions we make and how we execute is in our hands, no one else's. Let's tune out the noise and stay focused on the work and what we are building. I think I kind of cheated in my test. You cheated sorry. a little, except here's the one part that uh, you did not provide bold underline to with your voice. Okay. <laughs> uh, here's what I can share about what happened. Ah. He didn't say, here's what happened. Uh-huh. Or let me tell you what's going on. Mm -hmm. Here's what I can share. Um, so obviously, the word fiduciary in this statement is everything. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get sued if you're a board not acting in the best interest of your shareholders, which means helping your company make money, or to put it a different way, not undermining your company from making money, for instance, by tweeting negative things about how much the company sucks through the weekend, which interestingly, David, he has deleted all of those tweets and instead has put up a tweet with an emoji that I find to be a little unclear. It's the hand over mouth emoji, but I don't know if it's like a oops uh, <laughs> or a I'm going to be quiet. Like uh, I'm a little unclear. Um, of course, the contingent on a background check is interesting because I'm not totally clear um, what... <laughs> Uh, what in particular they would be looking for in a background check that would be relevant to being a board member? Perhaps you have ideas on that? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, a background check, I, I believe it would imply, it's, it's going to imply much more than just doing a criminal background check, like if you're purchasing a weapon. In other words, it would in involve a searching inquiry, I think, of, your personal life to see if there are any issues out there that could be embarrassing or damaging to the institution. Um, sure. You I, look for blackmail issues. Exactly. You look for financial conflicts. You look for criminal stuff. Uh, I'm a little confused by that, honestly, but it's fascinating that they included it. <laughs> I know that's why I'm, I'm, I even hate to even raise this sort of thing about looking for black marks or red flags or whatever, because it's just complete grotesque speculation, but they put background checks in there. They didn't have to do that. Um, but yeah, the, the fiduciary angle of this is the one I think that is absolutely most relevant. Um, you know, I'm looking at his, uh, his tweets and he has one of these, this is April 9th. That's still up on his profile. Hmm. Most of these top accounts tweet rarely and post very little content is Twitter dying question mark. Yeah. So that would be not in the interest of the shareholders. David, let me just paint you a scenario of what could have happened um, behind the scenes that would lead to a statement, that paragraph on the fiduciary um, interest issue. For instance, if you get sued by a shareholder for not acting as a member of the board in the fiduciary interest of the company, uh, perhaps there could be an indemnification clause, but that indemnification clause might have said, 
that the board gets to review and approve all tweets going out from your account. Right. <laughs> in order to ensure that you're acting in the fiduciary interest of the board. Yeah. Um, and, and that, for instance, I could imagine leading to a no thank you. Yes, I could easily imagine that. And then that leads to an interesting question to me. How much longer does he own 10% of Twitter? And now when he bought 10% of Twitter, Twitter stock went up and he could immediately sold 10% of Twitter and made a lot of money. But if you're just the guy, the tweeter with the most Twitter stock, um, not sure what that gets you really, <laughs> to be honest. And there was another part of this that was interesting. Um, the decisions we make and how we execute is in our hands, no one else's. I took that as a final middle finger lofted into the air <laughs> against Elon Musk, because there's been a lot of speculation that he bought the 10% to sort of like come in and shake things up and change things a ton. And this is saying, mm, actually, you don't run anything. You're not on the board. Um, you're not an executive of the company. You don't run anything. Well, you know what Musk can do with nearly 10% of Twitter, though, if he can find some allies who also own some of Twitter or rally other Twitter shareholders, he can replace all the members of the board with True. people who he believes share his interests. Um, but uh, he still will no longer need to act in the fiduciary interest of Twitter. They will, those board members that he handpicked, but he can handpick the whole board if he wants and still tweet whatever he wants. I think that's that's where this would head if that's what he wants to do. I don't know why he'd want to be on the board in the first place. The whole point of these takeovers is to put someone else on the board. Yeah. Now, and I do think it would be, as a practical matter, challenging to assume get another 40% plus um, of the shareholders. Not impossible. Not impossible. It's certainly, when you're starting with a base of 10%, it's a lot easier than if you're starting with a base of 1%. Um, shareholder activism man it's a thing it is a thing it is a thing all right all right next Sh yes all right over uh last week uh there was a trial of four members of the crew that was alleged to have plotted to kidnap the governor of michigan uh gretchen whitmer now some of our listeners have been following this very closely and you're going to be upset because we're not going to spend a lot of time on it um, because, well, because we, we have a guest, um, also because it is not incredibly complicated. Um, the essential defense that was offered by the plotters was, um, well, a, a key to their defense was the concept of entrapment. In other words, as more emerged about this plot, it became evident that the F FBI was involved in it extensively throughout. Now, um, this is something that's actually not all that in, uncommon. If you follow FBI prosecutions during the war on terror, you will find numerous occasions where the person plotting to an, engage in a terrorist act was plotting essentially with FBI agents the whole time. Um, in some cases, you'll find that FBI agents 
found individuals who seem to be what have terror leaning sympathies and sort of said, Hey, you want to do some terror? <laughs> and they said, yes. And then the whole thing is they're just interacting with the FBI all the way up into the FBI, providing them with, for example, with inert bombs and, and things like that. So you'll see it most often, by the way, in weapons purchases, whether it's bombs, illegal guns, that's when you're most likely to be talking to an FBI agent. It would appear from many of these prosecutions. It is stunning how many of these people um, end up talking to the FBI about their do crimes plans. Uh, But David, what's unusual about this case versus all of those other cases, I can't think of a single one of those other cases where the entrapment defense worked. It rarely works. It rarely works because it, the entrapment defense to be clear is not a, but for defense, right? It's not, well, I never would have done this if the FBI wasn't involved. It's much more of, an inducement defense and almost it's not my plot. It's the FBI's plot (laughs) that I've just been sort of uh, brought in that I'm, it's almost as if um, I am a passive member of this plot. I am not a driving force. I am not taking overt steps, Um, but just because the FBI is in your plot, just because they were the ones providing you the guns. If you take the guns, ask for the guns, pay for the guns, move the guns doesn't matter. That's not entrapment. You wanted to commit the crime and they were providing you the means to do so. It's quite different than uh, a viable entrapment defense where they say, um, hey, do you want to go commit this crime? And you're like, "Uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. And they're like, I've got guns. You're like, okay. And they're like, "Uh, I'll I'll be here with the guns. Will you meet me here? And you're like, "Um, yeah, yeah, I'll meet you there. And then you get arrested. Well, that's not enough. Right. Right, exactly. So that means that there was a ton of evidence introduced of deep, deep FBI participation and perhaps direction of this as a result to result in, in it, let's be clear about what happened, two acquittals straight out and two hung juries. So um, there's when there's a hung jury, there's an opportunity to prosecute again. So we'll see what happens. But as of right now, of the six federal charges brought in the Whitmer case, two guilty pleas, two acquittals, and two hung juries so far. So that's where we are. Shall we- A stunning loss for the federal government, by the way. You just don't see them lose like this. Um, I think I've said this before. By the time DOJ brings charges against you, your likelihood of success has dropped so precipitously <laughs> because, right. and I, I think this is a philosophical debate that the department should have more often, The department's philosophy is not to bring the cases that should be brought. The the department's philosophy is to bring the cases they can win. And so the whole point is that they don't bring cases that they think they'll lose. Set aside sort of the moral component of like, look, maybe we're going to lose this case, but we need to show the public that we care about this crime or that we believe the person did it. Obviously, Department of Justice doesn't bring cases that they both think will lose and the person's innocent. But if you think the person's guilty, but you think there's, you know, only a 49% chance you'll win, the department doesn't bring that case. For the most part, the department thinks you're guilty and they think there's a 60% chance they'll win. The department doesn't bring that case. We're looking at like most of the time, the department thinks there is an 80 to 90 to 100% chance they'll win that case before they file. 
Now, the higher profile, the lower that number can go. But I assure you, they thought it was well over 50%. So a shocking loss for DOJ. Yeah, yeah. And just as a final bit of practical advice, um, just to echo what I saw Jane Coaston write some time ago on Twitter, if you're talking to somebody about guns or bombs, you're talking to the FBI. That's what I said. Yep, yep, <laughs> exactly, exactly. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, let's move on to our guest, Sarah. Can you introduce him? Our guest is, well, now he's assistant professor of law, Joel. Uh, but to me, he was just one L, Joel, way, way, way back <laughs> in the L day. One L, Joel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Joel Alisea uh, went to Harvard Law School. I know that will shock no one. But from there, he uh, worked at Cooper & Kirk, a law firm that pod listeners will be familiar with. Tiny, tiny boutique that seems to have hosted everyone you've ever known. Um, and then clerked for Judge O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit, Justice Alito on the Supreme Court. He is now a professor at Catholic University, where he has just launched and is the director of the Project on Constitutional Originalism and Catholic yes. Intellectual Tradition. Uh, and I know it will come as a surprise to everyone that the honorary chairman, is that his title, Joel? Honorary chair of the advisory council. Yeah, that would be one Justice Samuel Alito, a.k.a. the spicy. Um, <laughs> but we are here today to talk about a law review article that Joel has written in the Notre Dame Law Review, The Moral Authority of Original Meaning. And normally, David, we do not spend a lot of time on law review articles, in part because I fall asleep. Um, but this one is particular and not just because Joel wrote it and I have a special place in my heart for him at all times, but um, because it goes back to something we've talked on and off about on this podcast, which is the pushback within the conservative legal movement against originalism, textualism, basically the whole thrust of the conservative legal movement since the Federalist Society started in 1982, coming from what I've been calling the Vermuli wing. Um, and we're going to dive into all of this. But before we do, we're going to define all of our terms. We're going to have a glossary, an AO glossary. And Joel, you're going to be our dictionary. So here are some terms we need to define. And you can take them in whatever order you want. Originalism, uh, common good constitutionalism, and natural law. So take it Ooh. away. I'm already loving this conversation so much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Welcome, Joel. <laughs> well, thank you both for having me on. I'm I'm honored to be here, and it's great, of course, to be with you, Sarah. Um, those three terms uh, are uh, important to define, in part because they are contested terms, right? And so, uh, the definitions I will give, I'm sure people would disagree with. Just as a, a preview to that, uh, originalism can be defined all sorts of different ways, but I think that uh, a conventional kind of definition of it would be that uh, government officials are bound by 
the meaning that the Constitution had at the time that it was ratified. Uh, and that could be viewed as the meaning that it had in terms of the, the founder's intent, the ratifier's intent, or its public meaning. There are all sorts of variations on originalism, but just kind of its core conventional definition, right, is uh, we're bound by the meaning that the Constitution had when it was ratified. So like, um, for instance, if the word literally was in the Constitution, we take it to mean what literally meant uh, more than 10 years ago instead of now, where the dictionary literally defines literally as not literally. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Or to, to give uh, an example that's often used in the literature, you know, the phrase domestic violence, um, which appears in the Constitution, uh, had a different meaning when it was uh, employed then, then obviously it does now. Fair enough. Okay. Originalism. Check. Next. Uh, natural law is notoriously difficult to, to define, but I'll say that um, the best way to kind of explain this would be to say, in our day-to-day -day lives, we have to make decisions about what to do. And when we're trying to make decisions about what to do, uh, we are employing practical reasoning the reasoning about practical things. How are we going to live our lives? The natural law is the application of our reasoning to those situations to figure out what is and isn't permissible, what is and isn't reasonable, you know, logical. Uh, and that means that there are some things that are just always impermissible, some things that we are required to do. Uh, and those conclusions or principles are drawn from human reason. And that is what the natural law consists of. It consists of these principles these, and in some cases conclusions drawn from human reason to guide our action and day-to-day -day life. Now, of course, there are a lot of things that reason doesn't dictate a unique answer to. Uh, and those things would not be directly dictated by the natural law, right? They're just things that we determine as an exercise of prudence in day-to-day -day life. And how does natural law interact with religion? Uh, so I think that uh, many natural law theorists would argue that uh, the natural law stands on its own because it's just a, a product of human reason and therefore you don't need to be a theist in order to uh, subscribe to the natural law. Uh, certainly the natural law tradition goes back before Christianity, uh, but the but there are many natural law theorists who are themselves Catholic or theists in some sense and uh, f infuse the natural law tradition with uh, theism and, and show that faith and reason uh, can go together. All right. Natural law. Check. Next. Common good constitutionalism. So this is a constitutional theory put forward by Harvard professor Adrian Vermeule. Uh, and he recently came out with a book by that title to try to explain the, the theory better. I think that the theory is really complicated and multifaceted. And so I think that re reducing it to just a couple sentences is tough, but I'll just say that. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, core, it's what we're going to do. It is what <laughs> yeah. we're going to do. But I, but look, I'm an academic, so I always have to caveat <laughs> these things. Like you're just going to have to deal with the caveats. Uh, the, uh, the, I think the core of Professor Vermeule's theory is that um, positive law, like the U.S. Constitution, should be interpreted in light of moral principles drawn from the natural law tradition. So, for example, judges would be able to directly bring to bear in interpreting the Constitution 
moral principles that they perceive to be drawn from uh, the natural law. And part of his theory is that originalism doesn't always lead you to the moral outcome, and therefore originalism is so deeply flawed as to need to go into the trash bin of legal theories, and we should instead, um, instead of applying originalism as a way to parse how to apply law to facts, we should apply what the moral end is. I'm trying to sort of get to like how he distinguishes why originalism is bad. Sure. So I think that the most plausible articulation of uh, Professor Bermule's view would be to say, um, we should interpret the law in light of moral principles. That means that where those moral principles would lead to an outcome different than where the original meaning would lead, we can cashier the original meaning. In fact, we must cashier the original meaning and interpret the text uh, to better accord with those moral principles. And crucially, those moral principles can be brought to bear in interpreting the law, regardless of whether the original meaning of the Constitution uh, embodies those moral principles or authorizes direct resort to those moral principles. So, David, when you and I first talked about this, I said that this must be satirical because no <laughs> one could possibly believe that um, that basically this amounts to a version of authoritarianism, in my view, because it's all about who gets to define what is the moral good that we are seeking. And for some reason, Adrian Vermeule thinks that he's going to get to define what the moral good is. And therefore that's silly. And I thought almost a Bentham-esque critique of uh, the uh, authoritarian wing of the conservative party. It appears that either it's a really long troll, which I still <laughs> could be, um, it is not. I'm just going to go ahead and say it is not. <laughs> you've been, it's like the one thing on this podcast you've been really right about, David. I just want to acknowledge <laughs> the one. That. Well, the one. at least there's one, at least there's one thing. Yeah. At least there's one. Okay. So here we are, David, we have defined our terms. Yeah. So there's another term though, that I think is linked to this, that is also thrown in the debate. Um, and this is often used as somewhat of a stand in for originalism, Joel. Um, but not precisely, proceduralism, proceduralism. And which is sort of a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a slur, to be honest, that essentially what the Constitution does is it's, it's a procedural document. It is a morally empty document uh, into it that creates a set of procedures such as uh, a neutral public square for uh, one of the sort of procedures of the Constitution would be that there is a there is a, a level of neutrality the constitution that is incompatible with natural law incompatible with the common good and you know to one thing about sarah's point i would say a natural law theorist would say no natural law is not in fact subjective it is it is discernible natural law is discernible um and is that i mean is that something when you're when you're looking at the literature is uh, what what is the common objection so steel man for a minute the non-originalist um common good constitutionalism objection to sarah's authoritarian accusation wait was that was a kind of a twisted answer no it was good let uh, me make yeah. it let me steel uh, let man me make vermule it. for us give us the best of vermule's argument yes yeah, steel man vermule sure so i think that he would uh make a couple of points in response to Sarah's criticism. I think you'd first say 
look, the application of moral principles to interpret the law is actually inevitable. It's impossible to really interpret uh, the law in hard cases, at least, um, without ap- applying moral principles in cases where the text just doesn't provide a determinate answer, which Vermeule would say is a lot of situations, I think, um, then you have to apply moral principles to resolve those questions. So any idea that we can somehow divorce interpretation from moral reasoning is just false. I think that would be his frontline point. I think his second point would be to say, well, then where should we derive those moral principles since they're inevitable? Why don't we derive them from the traditional moral reasoning that undergirds uh, the entire Western tradition um, and the American tradition as well. Uh, and those moral principles go back millennia through the natural law tradition, all the way back uh, to even before Christianity. Um, so why don't we rely on those? Now, again, I think it's really crucial to point out that notwithstanding uh, Professor Vermeule's repeated invocation of historical tradition, he is quite emphatic that he does not think judges should uh, and others should rely on these moral principles because of their historical pedigree, uh, but that they apply directly in interpretation of their own force by dint of the natural law. Okay, enough steel manning. You've written a whole law review article taking apart (laughs) this and why originalism itself um, has that built-in moral authority because self-government has a moral authority, even if an individual legal outcome may not come out the way that Adrian Vermeule likes. Right. So I think that Professor Vermeule uh, places a lot of emphasis on uh, the importance of the substantive outcomes in cases according with the natural law and with reason. Uh, as is, And it's appropriate to have that emphasis from the natural law tradition. Uh, but I think he largely overlooks, uh, even though he acknowledges you know, in, in passing every now and then in his book, I think he largely overlooks a second major component of the natural law tradition in thinking about the obligation of law, uh, and that is legitimate authority, you know, the allocation of authority among actors within a system. And the natural law sets boundaries as to how a government could allocate authority among different actors in a system. Uh, But those are pretty broad boundaries. Within that, uh, different societies can allocate power within their constitutional systems as they see fit as an exercise of prudence and and just good judgment. Uh, And in our particular constitutional system, uh, I think it's clear that under Article 3, federal judges are just not given the authority to uh, bring moral principles to bear in interpreting the Constitution unless the Constitution itself authorizes that sort of uh, resort to moral reasoning. Uh, And in some cases it does, uh, I think, uh, clearly. Uh, And in other cases, it may. There's a debate about that. Uh, But I think the ultimate question in our system is, as a historical matter, uh, what what authority does a judge have in a given situation? And that itself is ultimately founded on uh, a moral uh, base in that the the natural law tradition holds that the ultimate political authority, the ultimate authority to constitute a regime does reside in the people at large. Uh, And if that's true, then in order to respect their legitimate authority, we have to interpret their commands in the constitution, their allocation of power within their constitution as they themselves would have, which requires a resort to originalism. 
So that's sort of is uh, is that the heart of the ori- originalism is good actually uh, argument. Uh, I you know because one one thing that I have encountered time and time again, and and encountering this morning because I I wrote a piece that's in the Atlantic about why Republicans turned pretty dramatically on free speech uh, rights. Uh, Here we are that, trying to plug Joel's law review piece, and David just can't help but plug his own Atlantic piece. <laughs> I David, know. David. I'm sorry, but it is like half my podcast. So, <laughs> um, that, you know, so, so essentially, I, I, I completely get the argument that, wait a minute, that the structure itself is virtuous. The structure, in other words, that this is the structure defined by the people. It places, it properly places authority in different spheres according to the will of the people. But there's an awful lot of argument now that originalism and original public meaning in particular is yielding negative outcomes. And in other words, it's it's protecting uh, or enshrining things that violate or offensive to natural law. Um, not to refer back to a debate that occurred at your own institution um, in 2019, but I spent way too many hours of my life thinking about something called a drag queen story hour that I hadn't really ever heard of. And some of the constitutional, um, common, common good constitutionalists would say a structure that could theoretically protect a liberty to engage in that kind of behavior um, can is going to be innately offensive to natural law. In other words, if originalism yields that, then ori- originalism, regardless of its sort of structural virtue, is going to have such a negative outcome that it can't be we it can't be consistent with natural law. It can't be consistent with any reasonable moral law, and therefore um, virtue has to win out in the end. Yeah, I think that that argument carried to its logical conclusion would just be the obliteration of the principle of legitimate authority, right? If if the if the argument is simply uh, we have an imperative to always uh, create a system that can guarantee uh, the right outcome from the natural law perspective. Um, the only way that would be uh, even conceivably possible, setting aside the fallenness of humanity, um, would be if you uh, did not care about lines of authority. But once you impose limitations on authority, it necessarily follows that there will be some outcomes that a given actor cannot prevent, right? Um, even if that outcome is bad. <laughs> Um, and Aquinas is quite clear that there are circumstances where uh, the natural law tradition requires a, uh, a judge, for example, to allow an outcome that the judge knows um, is not uh, just, right? Uh, he talks about this, for example, with respect to uh, criminal trials and, you know, judging according to evidence as opposed to what the judge privately knows to be true about the guilt or innocence of, uh, of a defendant. Um, and so there are, there are situations where just because of the importance of legitimate authority and, re- and restrictions on authority, which is itself a moral principle, right, uh, drawn from the natural law, uh, there will be outcomes that are not in accord with the natural law. Uh, and as I said, if you're not, if you're going to deny that, then you're just denying that there are uh, 
that we can legitimately restrict the authority of various actors in our system. You know, one of the ways I've tried to put it is that the existence of a liberty can be a, a positive good, even if the liberty is not exercised in a virtuous way. In other words, the, there is the existence of the liberty, the, the existence of the free speech right itself is not a morally neutral proposition, that, that, that free speech itself is a virtue or is a, is a blessing, <laughs> uh, is however you want to have a blessing of liberty, however you want to phrase it, that the, that the a liberty, the existence of a liberty can be a positive good, even if an, a, an exercise of it yields something um, much worse. Due process, let's, let's move away from, let's move away from free speech, due process. The existence of due process is a positive good in accordance, say, with natural law, even if a consequence of due process is a murderer walks free. That doesn't violate principles of natural law if the process, if due process yields that result. Is that kind of, in a way, what, say, Aquinas would be arguing in the judicial context? So I think that... Uh, your your point, which I which I agree with, um, is a distinct but also very important point, right? Your your point wasn't so much that uh, there are these restrictions on authority that are themselves based in moral principle. Uh, it was more a substantive point about due process being a positive good, uh, a good thing in and of itself. Uh, and I agree with that, and I think that that's an an additional reason why, uh, in some circumstances, you could have uh, a moral principle that is itself correct uh, when applied to a given fact pattern uh, yield an outcome that seems at odds with what we would think would be the just outcome, right? Um, that can happen too. Uh, and so, so I think that part, part of the upshot of what we're talking about here is just that these are more complicated questions, that the natural law is not just some sort of, you know, equation where we just put in, you know, moral principle and uh, positive law, and we get to correct moral outcome, right? Uh, and I'm not, I should say, I'm not attributing that to Vermeule, uh, but I but I do think that there is a debate uh, going on right now where a lot of that kind of simplistic language and thinking is deployed. And I think it's important to instead say, no, the natural law tradition is rich and vibrant and complex. And therefore, understanding how it applies within the context of our particular American regime with our distinct history, our distinct constitution, and our traditions is complicated. And it can't just be reduced to, we need the right outcomes in cases. Okay. So now I want to get to the other side of this, which I've started to think is maybe more of a horseshoe than a linear line here, which is if legal conservatism for the last 40 years has been about process, um, as much as I think others have now used that to attack it, um, originalism, originalism is a process. It is not the outcome of um, getting to the right answer. Due process obviously is about process, unless we're talking about substantive due process, I suppose. Um, I think that Vermeule, in its most simplified form, is about outcome. And I think that the liberal tradition of interpreting, um, you know, Supreme Court cases, the Constitution has been about outcome. And I'm curious if you can compare and contrast Vermeule's sort of outcome-oriented 
theory of interpretation, legal interpretation, with the left's theory of legal interpretation? Great question. Right. So I, a couple points there. I'll say first that um, uh, I do think Vermeule's theory is very focused on outcomes. And I think he makes that very explicit in, in contrasting his view with originalism in a blog post he had on Mirror of Justice a few years ago when he was criticizing uh, Josh Hammer's common good originalism. Uh, and in his expl explanation of why originalism and common good constitutionalism, his theory, are incompatible, he focused on outcomes and said that the outcomes are, are, are what drive this. So I think that's right. Um, I don't think originalism is, is pure proceduralism. Um, as I said, I think it's rooted in substantive uh, moral principles. But uh, I, to get to your, to finally get to your question, um, I think that uh, Vermeule himself has been quite open about how his methodology uh, is very similar to the methodology of a very famous uh, legal theorist associated with the left, uh, Ronald Dworkin, uh, which has kind of been the most rigorous and most defensible version of living constitutionalism in the academy for the last you know, 40 years, is Dworkinianism. Uh, and uh, Vermeule is very clear that he embraces Dworkin's method, uh, but substitutes different moral principles that he's bringing to bear to achieve different outcomes than, than uh, Dworkin would have, right? Uh, so I think by Vermeule's own accounting, uh, his theory is very similar to those on the left, uh, in its, at least in its methodology, even if not in its theoretical grounding and the moral principles it brings to bear. But then this is where I get to my authoritarianism point. Maybe that's overstating it a little, but the left's living constitutionalism is all premised on the idea that therefore we need what we would now call progressives as judges who can determine what that good is that we are seeking. And it's not particularly grounded in anything except that judge's brain and therefore um, someone coming into court or someone uh, prophesizing what would happen 10 years from now going into court won't know because it will depend on how our moral sense in progressivism has evolved 10 years from now. Same with Adrian Vermeule's theory in which it's all based on what he thinks that moral good is that we're seeking. And I understand the argument that natural law maybe exists outside of Adrian Vermeule's brain, but maybe so does progressivism in a sense. And But in reality, not philosophy textbooks, that to me sounds very much like authoritarianism where you cannot judge the law in advance or separately because it is all about who gets to define what that end result good is. And that to me is the difference with originalism and why I actually um, uh, still, I do not think the proceduralism attack is a negative one. Yes, because the process is the moral authority. The process is the good. And the good is that you can know what the law is as a lay person without knowing the judge, so to speak. And originalism isn't perfect. And I think plenty of people will say, yeah, but that's not how it's working. Yep, I get that too. But at least there's a theory versus just saying it's up to what Adrian Vermeule or Ronald Dworkin think are quote unquote good and that that will change 10 years from now. Yeah, so I, I do think that, um, as you acknowledge, Professor Vermeule would say, well, uh, 
the natural law tradition is objective and uh, and it depends on what reason ordains. And so I'm not just kind of searching my own, you know, guts to figure out what I'm doing here. Uh, but I, I do think that what you said, Sarah, uh, does find echoes in Aquinas's own writings, right? Aquinas does say, he, at one point he takes up the question if judges should be judging according to law uh, or kind of on a case-by-case uh, basis. And he says it's better for them to be judging according to law and one of the reasons he gives is that uh, it's just more likely that the that the judge will get it wrong in the individual case than that the legislature uh, or whoever is the the organ that it that actually takes a broader view of the situation, not on a case by case basis, but promulgates the law for all in a general sense. Uh, that the legislature is more likely to get it right um, than the judge in the individual case would. Um, and it, it precisely for the reasons that you can imagine, right? The judges can be swayed in a given case when you have facts before you that are very sympathetic. Um, and so you would be, you want to do something for this particular person, um, but that might actually be contrary to the common good uh, to vindicate this particular plaintiff's claim uh, rather than just applying the positive laws is. Uh, so I think that your concern, which is a prudential concern about uh, human beings and their uh, tendency to be swayed in given situations toward what would actually not be in the in the common good. Uh, that does find real resonance in Aquinas in his thinking about the judicial rule. All right, we need to let uh, Professor Alisea get to you know molding young minds here. But David, you have a couple of good wrap up questions. Well, I, I have one question that has been kind of a bit on my mind, and that is. During some of the debates that I've had over these issues, common good constitutionalism, sort of this new, a a more uh, a newer right wing sort of theory of the power of the state writ large, whether it is the power of a judge or a justice to defy original public meaning for the sake of natural, uh, you know, their perception of natural law or the common good, uh, whether or to a theory of the state that. You know, if you look at the theory of state power that Ron DeSantis has, for example, it's not that different from Elizabeth Warren's theory of state power. They would just use that power for for different ends. And one thing that kept popping up in a lot of this discussion is that one of these views, in other words, the the view, the sort of common good constitutionalism, was more consistent with Catholicism and traditional streams of Catholic thought. And the other view, which the original public meeting view or a more limited government restraint stance is more consistent with traditional streams of Protestant thought. And I've rejected that. I've rejected that in part because I'm quite familiar with uh, a concept called Protestant dominionism, uh, which basically makes uh, Catholic integralism look like um, libertinism. (laughs) Uh, But I'm interested as to your view on a, the state of play in this debate is common good constitutionalism a more consistent, uh, is it a more, uh, not consistent with Catholicism, but it's sort of a theme within Catholic legal thinking? Uh, what is the state of play within the Catholic legal community on that debate? And where do you stand on the Catholic versus Protestant debate on, on, what, on the origins and sort of essential nature of originalism? That's a big question. Those are big questions. Um, To take your, what I took to be your first point, which was about the administrative state in particular, right? And the consolidation of power. um, 
I do think it's important to point out um, that Professor Vermeule's theory, while it kind of purports to be representative of the natural law tradition, is quite idiosyncratic in many ways. And one of them is his uh, strong endorsement of an administrative state. Uh, I'm not at all denying that there are natural law theorists who would have endorsed a strong administrative state, but but the the natural law tradition, as I said, uh, puts in place just broad boundaries on what the allocation of power within a regime is. And so to insist that such a broad and powerful administrative state um, is just so clearly uh, in uh, in the interest of the common good, seems to me to just be more of a feature of Professor Vermeule's own administrative law uh, background and his unquestioned expertise as an administrative law scholar than it is actually a feature, uh, an essential feature of the natural law tradition, or certainly of any sort of Catholic intellectual tradition. Um, I don't think there's any contradiction at all uh, between a, a Catholic natural law theorist uh, adhering to the natural law and also advocating a restrained and smaller administrative state, according to the original meaning of the Constitution. Um, So I think that a lot of this has just been, a lot of this debate about the relationship between the natural law tradition and the administrative state has just been inflected by the fact that the, the principal exponent of the common good constitutionalism theory is himself an administrative law scholar who has always defended a very robust administrative state. And I think we'll leave it there. If you want to know more, we're putting Joel's law review article in the show notes. You can go click on it there or stay tuned for all of the activities happening at Catholic uh, University Law School this fall with the new center. Joel, plug the center again. Thanks, Sarah. So the uh, project on constitutional originalism in the Catholic intellectual tradition we're, is launching its programming this fall and we're launching with a inaugural lecture by Justice Alito at uh, the Columbus School of Law. And the purpose of this whole project is to explore the relevance and the relationship between the Catholic intellectual tradition and American constitutionalism more broadly. So exactly the kinds of issues we've been talking about here for the last few minutes, uh, that is what this project is going to explore. And do you think that Justice Alito's uh, speech will be spicy or extra spicy as he launches your center. <laughs> I, I don't I don't want to to predict that, uh, but uh, you know, uh, past his prologue on, on one of these things. <laughs> Thank yeah, you congratulations, so much. congratulations, and uh, I wish you the best. It's a tremendously worthy uh, it's a tremendously worthy project and and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And that was great of Joel to join us. Any thoughts on the interview before we move on to your question of me? I think we need to book some time to talk about this horseshoe problem that I see. And I think we need someone from the left, uh, from the Dworkin side, to come on and, and talk about how they see the differences between what has now really emerged as three schools of thought uh, Dworkin living constitutionalism legal conservative originalism and legal conservative natural law common goodism. I think that would be a fantastic conversation because I, we often get the question from listeners, well, what exactly is a progressive 
jurisprudential theory of the Constitution. And we'll use the term living constitutionalism as a shorthand for it, but to have it explained at greater length, I think, from an actual architect and advocate of the position, I think would be great, would be great for listeners. And then they'd be able to more clearly draw these distinctions. I think that's a fantastic idea. My only um, concern about the Joel interview was it was just too short. <laughs> we, you know, it, I'll be interested to see AO uh, listener slash members who are going to comment on this podcast. We tend to be very practical on this podcast. We don't do a lot of philosophy. Yeah. We'll see how much people like the philosophy side of law versus the practical consequence law. I'm more practical consequence, I got to tell you, but we'll see. Well, you know, I, I think and argue a lot about philosophy, but because I litigated for 20 years, I'm always filtering it through practical consequence. You know, I, one thing, Sarah, that used to happen to me a lot was uh, when you file a, a high profile religious liberty case, you get a lot of input during the case from academics. They will email you and they'll say, why don't you try this argument? Why don't you try that argument? And for a long time, there have been a small constellation of academics who have emailed and sent messages to litigators saying, you need to try natural law arguments when asserting these cases. And I would always respond, well, that's fascinating, but where's my precedent? You know, I'm, I'm arguing to a judge, usually a lower court judge or a court of appeals judge, that this ruling must be that we should win because law and precedent says we should win. If you substitute law and precedent for natural law, um, you know what you're, you're going to do? You're going to lose because <laughs> natural law is not a precedent. So, David, I just finished the first philosophy book that I have read in since college. Okay. Other than maybe my husband's very into philosophy. He was a philosophy major. So sometimes he makes me like read portions of like Camus, the plague or something. I don't know if we're oh, considering gosh. that philosophy, but it was called why we are restless on the modern quest for contentment by Benjamin story and Jenna story. And it basically split into four parts. So it was really easy. It's Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and Tocqueville. And it talks about how Americans have this, uh, Montanian view of, um, you know, uh, immediate pursuit of happiness type idea. Uh, and you know, just enjoy what you're eating and then enjoy that you're sitting here and enjoy looking at the flowers. And like, that is where you should get your happiness from. And that, that lack of sort of otherness of our happiness of duty as a happiness, uh, as a source of happiness is why Americans are not content. Why Americans are so restless because that is not built into our culture. Um, and Tocqueville obviously writes a lot on that issue. And anyway, I thought it was a pretty good book, a philosophy book for people like me who maybe aren't that into philosophy. And I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Fascinating. All right. So you okay. had a question for me? I do. This is a oh, dating boy. question having nothing to do with Caleb. <laughs> okay. Well, poor Caleb, because he's getting so much wisdom from us otherwise. I know. All right. Here's the question. Advice that young women get often, and even perhaps some older women in the dating world, is that it is not only okay, but in fact preferable for the man to love the woman more than the woman loves the man. The idea being that um, he needs to be more invested because he won't sort of have those institutional ties to the marriage, the relationship, that if um, 
he feels like he's won this prize, he will be a better husband, whereas she will find contentment through her children, through his <laughs> love, through, you know, uh, and I, maybe I'm, I'm giving away too much because I really think that a lot of women subscribe to this theory that it's a, you want to make sure that he loves you a little bit more than you love him. Because if he feels like he's settling in any way, he will wander. It will lead to unfaithfulness. Um, and you know, it's the Chris Rock thing, right? A man is only as faithful as his options. And you want him to think that you are his best option and are his best option. Uh, curious, David, what you think about that advice for women. I'm going to immediately, uh, uh, I'm going to immediately coin a term. We'll call that the say anything fallacy. After the, do you remember the movie Say Anything? Maybe this yes. is. Well, yeah. It's true for basically like every movie like this. Every movie, he likes her more than she likes him. And we're told that's the making of a good fairy tale. Yeah, it's the John Cusack holding uh, the <laughs> boom box outside the window and this notion of the pursuit you know, the pursuit of the man and essentially in many ways, almost just like the acquiescence of, of the woman. Yeah. Okay. She'll come around to it. You're right. <laughs> no, it's, it. the pursuit is such a huge part of this theory that he needs to constantly feel like he's in pursuit of her love, even in the marriage. Uh, the last, I would say that's such toxic advice. It's almost hard to even quantify how toxic it is because the last thing you want is a guy to feel perpetually insecure in a relationship and that it is not in fact romantic that somebody is sort of trying, trying to be in, in, in this sort of sense of constant pursuit, because you know what? People will get tired of it. They, they don't want to be in pursuit of their spouse for 25 years. <laughs> yeah. Know? But what about all these men who will constantly say when they're accepting some award and I have to say it just grates on my ears. I married up. I tricked her into saying yes. That is that oh, philosophy put into aphorism. If you want an unbelievable rant on that topic, I should just set down my headphones, walk downstairs and ask Nancy French to come up here. <laughs> it bothers me so much. Well, there's two aspects of it. One, uh, let me just channel Nancy. Okay. One, they're lying. They're they're not in. They do not, in fact, believe that um, their their spouse is quote unquote the better half. Even if they're in a wonderful, wonderful marriage, they're going to think, "I just love my wife," and we're not grading who's the better of the half. We just have a great marriage and a great relationship. And the other thing is. 90% of guys, when they say it, they're talking about one thing, and that is physical appearance. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest. 90% of the time when you hear the married up, I outkicked my coverage, whatever yes. you want to say, it is completely about physical appearance. And, you know, put to, for me to put on sort of my um, feminist ally hat, a subtle manipulation that says, your appearance, your continued outstanding physical appearance is very important to me. Yes. And then in fact, I don't need to be good looking because my qualities are um, earning more money, being more powerful, being better in other respects. Yours are how you look. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I find it incredibly annoying. I know we're going to hear from people in the comment section that like, well, I say that, but I mean it in a really nice way. 
this is not to say you don't. Of course you do. Because you've heard other people say it and it's just sort of like the societally accepted thing. But um, I will say the number one cause of divorce in my friend group is women who um, married someone beneath them in some respect, thinking that his adoration of her would create you know, loyalty, faithfulness, all of these good qualities in the marriage. And in fact, it bred resentment on his part and not always infidelity, but either infidelity or such deep unhappiness and resentment that the marriage couldn't survive. There's even a, I don't know that I'm going to coin another term, but it's not entirely original. So they had the say anything fallacy also bleeds into the smoking hot wife heresy, (laughs) (laughs) which is... Uh, popularized after the Talladega Nights movie and Ricky Bobby in the prayer, thank God for his smoking hot wife. And then a, a, a preacher before NASCAR, a NASCAR race, thank God for his smoking hot wife. And there's actually even this sort of controversy within evangelicalism over that somehow having a quote unquote smoking hot wife is like your reward for being a good Christian guy. Uh Uh-huh. And so that goes back to the outkick my coverage thing and the married up thing. Yeah. Yeah. Not a fan, not a fan of that whole line of thinking. All right. So I know there are some women out there listening to this and it's just like my number one dating advice to women right now is this idea that like settling is like a a moral good for your marriage. Um, uh, okay, now the slightly explicit rating. So if you have young kids in the car, maybe don't turn, like, don't listen to this part. Sex is actually important in marriage. And if you're not attracted to the person, you don't like the sex now, ladies, it's not going to get any better. And you can't, you shouldn't have a marriage that is um, based on friendship and partnership only, only. That's not actually a good idea. And this is all part of that same idea that like, well, he loves me enough. I'm not that attracted to him. Yeah, I mean, I don't like like the sex, but like that's not what marriage, that would fade anyway. Passion goes away. I just need a friend and a partner. I think that's bad advice. All right. David's not going to weigh in on sex being important (laughs) in a marriage because he is turning beet red at the mention of this thing that by definition, David, we all know you've done at least twice. (laughs) Okay. All right. Deep discomfort radiating. (laughs) He's so red, y'all. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, that's a spicy ending to the Advisory Opinions podcast. Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) You can hear the discomfort. It's in your voice. We'll be back Thursday, hopefully not talking about that. And in the meantime, please rate us on wherever you get our podcasts. And please subscribe and please check out thedispatch.com.